thanks to you all for coming and, uh, and joining me today. And thanks, of course, to Hannah and Vigil. Um, I'm sorry Hannah had to, had to duck out. Um, so my talk today is called High Tech International Law. And uh, I've been thinking for a number of years now about the intersection between uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning on the one hand and international law on the other. So uh, I worked through in a paper how machine learning might affect things like detention by our military, um, how it could serve as potentially a tool for targeting uh, decisions made during conflict. And then in a separate paper, I applied machine learning to the use ad bellum, so questions that come up uh, under the UN Charter and the international law related to the use of force where I was thinking about how machine learning might affect states' decisions about resorting to force in the first instance, how it might be used, for example, to think through anticipatory self-defense uh, or the ideas of proportionality in responding to an attack. So I wanted then to step back and broaden the lens a little bit more to think about how machine learning tools might shape international law more broadly. And I saw that there were scholars who were using these concepts these tools, these machine learning tools uh, and computational text analysis tools uh, in a couple of areas, including st in studying the Supreme Court and federal courts. Uh, just to give a quick definition here, so computational text analysis is uh, basically a process of using machines to analyze large corpora of data. So the idea is you can use these tools to detect patterns in large buckets of data and identify the topics contained in those documents, um, maybe also the sentiments that they express. Are these documents in favor of something or opposed to something? We also see, and maybe you have seen, uh, reports about law firms and companies like uh, Westlaw that are starting to use machine learning tools to, um, to, to isolate particular uh, sets of information, and I'll say a little bit more about that. So I started to wonder whether international lawyers, and in particular those in governments, those working for states, could benefit from these kinds of tools. So I decided to try to sort through the combination of tools and problems that we're seeing in these other areas, in the scholarship academic area, as well as in the private law firm area, um, to think about how international lawyers could use some of these same kinds of tools. So, um, so the paper's called High Tech International Law, um, and it's coming out this spring in uh, GW Law Review. So I wanted to be creative in this project, but I didn't want to produce something that was well outside the range of possibility. I also thought that I needed to uh, consider why it is the case that international law has been very slow to turn to these tools. What is it about international law that makes it um, conservative in this area? And then I wanted to address a larger question, too, which was, let's assume that states do start to use these tools, or some states start to use these tools. What is the distributive impact of the tools in terms of uh, interstate power? Uh, will it advance international law's goal to you know, serve as a way to reduce interstate tensions, reduce transaction costs between states? Um, or is it going to uh, exacerbate some of those challenges? We have seen unintended consequences in other areas of um, machine learning and AI. Uh, we've, I'm sure you all have read about deep fakes. We've seen an over-reliance on machine learning lead to embarrassing errors, 
such as when Amazon's program saw that you were buying one kind of fertilizer and said, maybe you'd like to buy this other kind of fertilizer. Others have used this to make bombs. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, we need to think hard about uh, these tools as we're thinking about adopting them. Um, we know that states have wide disparities already in technical competence and in an appetite for using uh, technology um, in government. And yet, it also struck me that this is a chance to lift all boats in some areas. It need not create or need not exacerbate uh, the power dynamics necessarily. And finally, I think there's a, uh, as I'll talk about, I think there's a role for the uh, actors like the United Nations and also um, uh, tech NGOs who are interested in kind of open data um, to, to step in and help develop some of these tools that uh, maybe less technologically advanced states could use. So my order of business, I want to um, march through things as follows. First, I want to pro provide a little bit of background on machine learning and computational text analysis so we have a common vocabulary. Then I want to think about why states and international lawyers might choose to use some of these tools uh, in their practice. And then I want to turn to um, two buckets of possible applications. So one is in the development, the creation of international law. Here I'm thinking about treaty negotiations and also discovering state practice for customary international law purposes. So that's one bucket. And then the second bucket is thinking about how states could use these tools to resolve international disputes, so dispute settlement. And then I'll conclude with a couple of thoughts about the distributional effects that these tools might have um, in the real world. Okay, so. By way of background, what are computational text analysis? What do I mean by machine learning? So uh, painting with a broad brush, these are algorithmic tools that allow users to process large amounts of data quickly. They can extract patterns from the data that humans would not necessarily detect. They can make predictions based on thousands of past examples that the machine has processed. And they can identify and categorize things. So you've seen you know, algorithms identify dog photos versus cat photos. Um, it can identify and categorize images, but also do that with documents, with words on a page, or with uh, as between and among documents. Computational text analysis is also sometimes referred to as text as data, text as data tools. Why? Because you're using the text, you're using the documents rather than, say, images or numbers um, as the underlying data that's being processed. Machine learning tools, which is a kind of subset of these, are tools that we think of as kind of learning on their own. So you, you program an algorithm, make some prediction, you give it a feedback about how accurate it was, and then it goes back through and it corrects, it reweights what it's evaluating to make the prediction to become more and more accurate. So uh, an example here is uh, lung cancer slides. So you might train an algorithm. You tell it, here are 100, let's take, here are 1,000 slides that show lung cancer. These are x-rays. Uh, it processes through the slides. You then, uh, you then you show it another set of 100 slides, and it makes predictions about whether it's lung cancer or not. You then you tell it whether it's gotten it right or not. It goes back through and it becomes increasingly reliable. Now notice there though, you won't necessarily know what the system's looking for 
what it is assessing in these x-rays that leads it to become more uh, accurate. And so this is why you sometimes hear about these things as black boxes, because it may be hard to track exactly what the algorithm processed. In computational text analysis, there are uh, just a couple of concepts in here that I'll refer to again, so I'll describe here. First is this idea of topic modeling. So you're basically training the algorithm to sort documents based on whether they're mostly about international banking or they're mostly about climate change. But interestingly, you don't have to tell it in advance which buckets you think are going to be in the documents. You could give it 10,000 documents, and it might produce 40 categories of uh, similar buckets of documents. Another tool is something called sentiment analysis. And here, this is classifying documents basically as being in favor or opposed to certain propositions. So scholars have conducted sentiment analysis on Twitter feeds to try to anticipate the outcome of elections. Would that we knew the outcome of elections. <laughs> uh, so private law firms are starting to use these tools to do things like identify the most relevant legal precedent, identify which arguments have been most persuasive to which set of judges. Maybe they can identify uh, how quickly does this judge tend to turn around uh, or rule on summary judgment motions. Uh, they've also used these tools to um, review contracts and in some cases even create templates for contracts. So they scan you know, 2,000 contracts that the firm has worked on and uh, sort of can, can um, almost take an average of what the basic contract is and then compare it to the one that your client or you've just developed for your client to see where the differences are. So, uh, and also as I mentioned, we have scholars who are working on domestic law issues who are using computational text analysis tools. So in the constitutional law space, we have people who are trying to predict the authorship of unsigned judicial opinions based on uh, stylistic analyses of each justice's opinion writing. Um, we have a number of law review articles that have developed algorithms to predict the outcome of Supreme Court cases. And some of them claim they can do so better than uh, our con law profs here in the building. Um, and you can also see when courts are adopting language from the party's briefs. It's basically a type of plagiarism software that can, that can tell you something about which advocate you might want to hire. Oh, this is an advocate who's, uh, whose briefs tend to get adopted by the courts. In administrative law, we're also starting to see this. So Professor Livermore here has done some work on this, and he's conducted a sentiment analysis of public comments on draft agency rules. So notice and comment procedure runs all the comments through to try to um, uh, pick up what the thrust of the sentiments of the rules are. Okay, so that's just by way of background a little bit about these tools. Why might states be inspired to use machine learning or computational text analysis in their international relations or international legal settings? I think it is true that international law is generally very slow to change. This is the nature of the beast. International lawyers tend to be quite conservative, small c conservative. Um, international law forms slowly. You all have studied this idea of customary international law. There is no such thing as sort of uh, immediate uh, custom. It takes lots of time. Negotiating treaties takes lots of time. 
And we necessarily look to what we've done in the past, right? It is a pretty backward-looking um, profession generally, and I think in international law in particular. Further, I think it's fair to say that governments often lag behind the, uh, the private sector when it comes to technology, right? The government has a, had a hard time, for example, getting um, people in to work on cyber stuff because they're all busy in Silicon Valley making a lot of money. But I do think there's some reasons that states will adopt or should consider adopting some of these tools. First, near-peer ambitions. China, I think, is likely to dive in with both feet on this. So even if U.S. or European lawyers are skeptical about the tools, they at the very least need to understand what the tools could be, if, even if they decide not to use them themselves. So I think pressure to understand and potentially to keep up with uh, near peers. Second, I think, I've already uh, gestured at this, this proof of concept in private law. Lawyers in private firms negotiate agreements. So do government lawyers working in international law. In private sector, you advise your client on the likely outcome of cases, sort of risk assessment. International lawyers have to do that with their policy clients as well. Conduct legal research on vast amounts of text. Both sets of lawyers have to do that. So we've seen firms start to use machine learning for all of these tasks. Um, I think there are, so, there's, uh, there's, so there are these proofs of concept that international lawyers should pay attention to. There might also be some client pressure to adopt the tools, especially, I think, if you have a political appointee who comes in from the private sector and says, you know, I've just arrived. All my associates know how to use this stuff standing on their heads. Why are we still marching into the library with these dusty tomes of, um, you know, treaties in force? Let's, let's step up our game a little bit. To some extent, I think there will be uh, the necessity of supplementing your ability to get engage in your international legal work could help drive this too. So I took a look at the number of lawyers inside a range of foreign ministries, our equivalent of the State Department. The U.S. has a huge number relative to everybody else. I think we have about 250 lawyers in the State Department. Most other countries, Mexico, Norway, Israel, they have about 25. So a much, much smaller number of uh, lawyers. And yet constantly a new set of agreements, new sets of disputes, new sets of international case law that you're expected to get your arms around. Also, vast numbers of documents from places like the UN uh, and travaux for the treaties, uh, decisions coming out of arbitral tribunals, speeches being made by foreign ministries that are not your own, things you really want to keep up on. So some sense that we're going to need help getting our arms around all of those um, pockets of data. Are there challenges to adopting some of these tools? Absolutely. I don't want to undersell that. I think one of the biggest uh, uh, challenges here is that uh, the format that this data exists in is, is not what we would consider clean. So some of these documents are born digital, one since maybe, I don't know, 1994 at the UN. But everything earlier than that is basically scanned PDFs that have been uploaded into the library at the UN. Um, we also have uh, vast, vastly different kinds of documents that would be relevant. So in the private sector, you're mostly talking about court cases. 
Maybe you're talking about government regs, right? But they're all more or less in the same format. Whereas in international law, you care about a whole different kind of documents. You care about treaties, but you also care about speeches by foreign ministers. You care about what the Secretary General said in a, a statement in the Security Council. So um, you have that problem as well. And further, you have a language problem, right? So there are six languages in the UN, each of which is official. Uh, if you're a, an associate in a firm, maybe you do have to work with other languages. I don't want to suggest that all of the legal work is done only in English. But uh, if you care about the state practice of 180, 190 states, that's a lot of languages you're going to have to get your arms around. So there will surely be challenges uh, in moving forward on any of these um, projects. Let me turn now just to give you some examples of how I'm thinking about these tools potentially being used in these two buckets of creating international law and then adjudicating. In the creation part, I've thought about it in, in two different areas. One is in treaty negotiations, and the other is in assessing this, the status of customary international law. So I'll start with treaties to just give you some examples of how I think computational text analysis might help uh, an international lawyer do her job. First, you could try to use these tools to identify your negotiating partner's equities. So, for example, you could look at the frequency distribution of topics in every document that Kuwait has submitted in the UN for the past 20 years. Turns out, maybe you find, that Kuwait always is talking about territorial integrity. Okay, so that's useful for you to know when you're about to sit down with your Kuwaiti negotiator on some multilateral treaty, you know what buttons to push. You know what they're going to care about um, in, in that negotiation and also maybe outside that negotiation. Maybe there's a package deal to be had. Or maybe you find out that India is fixated on disarmament. It's something you would never really be able to spend the time sorting through all those documents to find out on your own. But if you feed it to the right algorithm, really interesting things could come up. You also could discover that a group, groups of states tend to vote the same way on certain types of issues. Now, we all know that there are, um, there are sort of voting blocks in the UN. That's not a news flash. There's something called the WIAG, Western European and other group. Wouldn't be a surprise to find out that the Danes and the Norwegians tend to vote the same on lots of issues. But you, there might also be other stuff going on that you have not been attuned to that you could uh, find out through these, and that would help you strategically manage the process, the negotiation process. You can even potentially predict the outcomes of treaties. So there's been some scholarship on this. There are a couple of scholars who have done this with bilateral investment treaties, or BITs. Trained an algorithm on 1,600 BITs and created this algorithm that could predict the text of a BIT if you entered the two different countries that you were, that were notionally negotiating a new bid based on the bit, what the bits look like for those countries in other negotiations. And in particular, it applied it to a U.S.-China negotiation. The U.S. is, in fact, in the process of negotiating a bit um, with China, and, uh, and it produced a draft text. Another really common way that I think these kinds of tools will emerge, and maybe already are being used, is um, during negotiations, interpretation and translation tools. 
So the UN has a formal translation and interpretation. They have simultaneous interpretation among the six languages, but there are lots and lots of uh, people there who barely speak one of those languages, right? Not their primary language. So tools like Google Translate and Skype's simultaneous interpretation are increasingly going to be important and helpful to those who are not uh, fluent in one of those six languages. Now, we've all seen some, some quirky slash silly Google Translate going on, but this is an area where the, the improvements are really going to be, I think, pretty steep and dramatic because these are tools that are being developed not just in private law firms, but every time we use it, it's basically learning and improving, and there's so many people using it that that's a tool that is going to get fine-tuned uh, over time. And Google has started, and there are some co competitors to Google too, using what's called deep learning, which are these sort of deep neural nets um, to help predict what, what word usually comes next after somebody says this word. What's the most common word that follows that and so on. Another way you could use some of these tools is you could scrape, web scrape your negotiating partner's media, social media, websites at home, during the ongoing negotiations to see how the public is reacting to particular proposals. So maybe even an in anticipation of your new extradition negotiation with Russia, you figure out, based on these tools, that the public really cares about the political offense exception. And that would be good to know as you're heading into the negotiations where your partner's sensitivities are based on where the public's sensitivities are as well. Notice that that might work better for when you're negotiating with democracies than if you're negotiating with autocracies. And then more radically, this is the, maybe the, one of the, the funkiest proposals in the paper, or contemplated ideas in the paper, is you could um, run a motion detection software during your negotiations to try to test your partner's truthfulness. So let's say you and the Chinese are having a negotiation about those bits, and um, you're in your home conference room doing it. Turns out you have cameras embedded in the ceiling um, that are recording the, the conversation and also running a motion detection software over that video. And on a break, you go back into your little room and uh, your, your experts say, okay, when they said that they could not, this was their bottom line on this, they were lying. So that is a, another place where you could use these tools. That's treaties. How about custom? How would this potentially be relevant for customary international law? So I think, as most of you know, state practice takes a huge range of forms. Diplomatic acts, legislative acts, submissions to the UN, public speeches. And one of the criticisms of customary international law is that it's very often driven by uh, Western states. And in particular, historically, states like the US and the UK published these digests of their practice um, and every year, you know, put out huge volumes. So easy place to go to try to find out, well, what has the state practice been on X? Right? You have your thing. But there are many, many other states engaged in all sorts of state practice, now and historically, where that practice has been much harder to detect. So clearly, uh, the trick here is identifying it, is identifying either past state practice or even current state practice. And here, topic modeling could do a great job. It, if you give it a 
bucket of documents help extract practice on territorial seas or on uh, overflight rights. Um, let's say you decide you're, you're interested in freedom of navigation. Not only could you topic model for that, but you can also, it will find things related to that, even if you don't tell it what other terms are commonly associated with it. So could decide, could determine that related concepts include disputed territorial seas or is this a rock or an island? Things associated with law of the sea disputes. So the long pole in the, in the tent here, I think, is digitization. It's not the machine learning parts of this. I think the machine learning tools could relatively easily be developed. It's, it's getting the stuff into a bucket where you can process it. And even if these archives prove too hard or too costly to unearth, you can web scrape, I think, the practice that's captured online in a way that gets you beyond just a Google search. I think it goes deeper than that. Okay, so that's potentially creation of international law. What about international disputes? Can the tools be useful here too? So I think potentially, yes. I think you could use computational text analysis and machine learning tools to better prepare for litigation and, uh, and also, so litigation in tribunals, but also dispute resolution outside of tribunals in a more traditional uh, diplomatic negotiation, shuttle diplomacy between two states. On the first part, on the tribunals part, I do think these tools can help you understand the workings of arbitral and judicial tribunals. You could figure out, for example, which arbitrator wrote the underlying arbitral opinion. Usually there are three arbitrators, and usually the opinions are not signed. But you could conduct a stylistic analysis to figure out who wrote it. You can also help figure out which arbitrators have more or less influence in the drafting. And that would tell you as a state which arbitrator you might want to hire or not hire in the future. Might also, some people have figured out that sometimes it's the secretariat of the arbitral tribunal, sort of the, the staff that's kind of running the arbitration that are really behind the, the outcome, not the actual arbitrators. So that's also interesting to know. Uh, I mentioned plagiarism detection software. Could be helpful to know which judges or which courts borrow from parties' briefs. Why? Well, it would inform whether you hire outside counsel, expertise, uh, or you're, you just go with your own lawyers. Could also be relevant um, in your decision about whether you, you appear before a tribunal at all. So there have been a couple of instances recently, and some historically, where a, a player decides not to appear in a court case or an arbitration. Notably, US decides not to appear in the Nicaragua case in ICJ after they lose on the jurisdictional front. More recently, you have China deciding not to participate in an ITLOS um, uh, 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 hearing. If you know that the tribunal relies heavily on the party's briefs, well, maybe you make a different decision on that. So that could be uh, an option as well. And then how about predicting outcomes? So I think this tool seems among the more speculative that I talk about in the paper, although people have done it, as I mentioned, with the Supreme Court. And other scholars have tried to do it with the European Court of Human Rights, which produces thousands of judgments, a right? big corpus of work. And they've claimed that they had about 75% accuracy. So what they did is they trained it on the facts 
and then the judgment. Then they would present the system with just the facts and see how it did at predicting the judgment. So notice one thing here that makes this an imperfect study is that the people writing the facts might well frame the facts in a way that supports the judgment. So um, the facts are not necessarily neutral facts. Um, but uh, several scholars have actually uh, done work on this, uh, on this area. So notice it would be hard with something like the International Court of Justice where there are very few decisions in any given year, maybe 175 total in the history of the court. That's not a big enough N to, to do. You should just read those opinions, right? This comes in handy where you have a large volume of stuff that it's really hard for you to read yourself. How about arbitrating algorithmically? So this is something that a couple of scholars have proposed. Um, uh, I think more likely what you could use the tools for is to sift through the law more quickly and more effectively than a human might be able to propose settlement ranges uh, or potentially draft awards. You could have the system draft an award and then the, the humans could compare their draft award to the system's award to figure out whether they track or not, and if not, why. How about for disputes that are not inside a courtroom or inside an arbitral room? What about just our straightforward policy disputes? So, so Middle East peace process is sort of exhibit A, but there are a whole lot of these persistent uh, foreign policy disputes. So take Western Sahara, right, where Morocco claims it, Western Sahara wants to be independent. You could use these tools, web scraping, for example, to make sure that you have unearthed all possible ideas that have ever been proposed about this topic. Right? So let's say I'm the arbitrator, on, or I'm the, the diplomat selected for adjudicating the Western Sahara dispute. I'm finally going to get it right this time. Well, one thing I'd like to do is know, what are the 300 proposals that smart people who've been thinking about this for a long time have developed? So this could be a way to help get that in front of you. And then finally, I'll, uh, I've mentioned the idea of understanding public reactions of affected nationals. That's relevant, I think, both before a negotiation and uh, after or during a negotiation. But notice that these tools could also be used to manipulate public reactions. Right? There is a dark side here um, that we should keep in mind. So you could develop tools that could sway the public toward or away from certain proposals. And you could even do this as a third-party state, right? As I, I as the arbitrator, the, the diplomat, might not. I, I want you know, there to be an honest broker. But there could be some state out there that wants to put a spanner in the works. And they could be doing all sorts of things in this space to try to throw my efforts off. OK, so those are just some ideas to chew on or for ways in which these tools might be used. Are there challenges? What are some of the ethical challenges here to deploying these? So if you guys have read any news articles about machine learning and AI, there are challenges in getting this right. I'll mention just a couple. Um, many of the same problems that you've already read about in you know, the Amazon's recommending bomb-making materials articles I think would come in play here. So the first is embedding or replicating bias. Let's assume that arbitrators tend in general to find for wealthier states 
because they're worried that the wealthy states could um, really make a big fuss, badmouth them publicly in a very um, sort of broadly circulated way if they hold against the, the wealthier states. So if you're training an algorithm that's trying to predict the future outcome of arbitral disputes, it's going to take into account the fact that wealth matters. Even if you don't tell it that wealth matters, if you enter information about the countries involved, it will ascertain that that's an underlying factor. Um, it might make the prediction more accurate, but it might be a bias that we don't want to replicate. How about errors in data? So in all this, it's garbage in, garbage out. Right? Your predictions are only as good as the quality of the data that you have. So um, it'll take a lot of work to get this, get this right. Um, opacity is another critique, this idea of a black box. I think if you're a lawyer confronted with some of these tools, somebody says to you, hey, you know, policymaker X is really hot on uh, doing topic modeling in this set of documents, you want to know, OK, what went into this algorithm? How, why should I trust it? Can you tell me a little bit of how it works? And then finally, uh, there's this idea of automation bias. So uh, people tend to believe what machines tell them. Uh, and uh, so if your machine is wrong but uh, seems credible, you may go with it, even if your own experience is to the contrary. So that would be another thing you'd want to get trained on before you dive all in on this. OK, so um, distributional effects. If states do adopt some or all of these tools, who are the winners and who are the losers? I think this is an important um, question to think about. And I think the story here is mixed. If we're talking about tools that are relatively inexpensive to develop, relatively easy to use, then I think those are the kinds of tools that are going to lift all boats. So if we're thinking about the translation or interpretation software, for example, that helps um, uh, you know, improve the capacity of states that are less technologically savvy to participate during multilateral negotiations. What about the tools that are sophisticated and costly to develop? Well, will those exacerbate existing power differentials? Quite likely, yes. Uh, tools that help predict the outcome of court cases, if we can get that right, or the, the roles and, and power of different arbitrators, same thing. Emotion detection software deployed in secret, I think clearly uh, not all states will come to negotiations with those tools in their pockets. Of course, it is true that states already come to negotiations with very different power dynamics. The question really is, is how much is this uh, uh, altering that? Is it doing so in a disproportionate way? Just as a footnote, I think there will also be distributional effects within a single state. So not just between states, but these kinds of tools, if they start to come into government work, will empower those in government who are tech literate. They will empower lawyers who are comfortable dealing with technology, and they will disempower the Luddites right? if these turn out to be valuable tools. Overall, I could imagine four different outcomes here. So one is we say, look, these tools are overall going to be beneficial for international law because states will be more uh, easily able to come to agreement in negotiations or in adjudication. Option two would be, well, yes, they'll facilitate agreement, but they'll do so in a way that seems unfair to those who are not able to use these tools. So it actually um, exacerbates dissatisfaction with international law. 
Third, if they're overtly seen as misused or used unfairly, it might actually hinder agreement. States will not want to conclude agreements where they feel like they've been buffaloed. Right? And then fourth option is no notable changes, either because the tools are ineffective or because everybody's got them. And so it sort of raises all boats uh, in the same way. And it may well depend on the context of the interactions, the context in which the tools are used. So if two states are in a zero-sum negotiation, they're, very likely to, very, they're not very likely to tell the other side, look, we've got these tools. Uh, they're, they're running uh, on your past documents, and we know things you don't. But if you're in a negotiation where you're really trying to get to a win-win treaty, you might be more willing to tell the state, look, you know, we ran a study of all of your past treaties, and we found that if we conclude this, it's going to be in tension with two of those treaties. So let's talk about that. Right? So you could do it in a positive way, too. So I think most important is how states use the tools. How do they use them, not whether they use them. And I'll just close by mentioning this role for the UN. I think there is potentially a role for the UN Secretariat here. So it could do a couple things. It could say, look, we're going to clean the data. We're going to create this giant database starting with what we have and maybe cleaning up more historical documents and make it readily available for researchers. I think they could also offer data scientist type services, including some of the algorithms that I just discussed. They could develop some of these and allow states to play around with them, put different selections of documents in and produce different uh, sets of information. And there are a bunch of publicly minded kind of data NGOs. They're interested in public data, open access work. They've done a lot of work with cities, US cities. Those kinds of actors might potentially, if they're interested in foreign policy, find an opening here for, for new interesting work. So just to conclude, I think there are lots of room for actors who are interested in applying machine learning and computational text analysis tools to get creative in the international law space. Uh, in the foreign policy space. And so I would encourage those interested in international law, like I assume you in this room, to keep an eye out for these tools and think about, when you see them, is this something that could help advance uh, the progress of international law? So with that, I will wrap up and see if you guys have any questions. Please. Oh, yes. Sorry. Um, you mentioned that it could, that this machine learning software could be an equalizing force that raises all boats, or it could be used particularly by more, I guess, technologically advanced countries. Yeah. Is there one side, just from like general trends of advancing technology, that you see that weighing more towards? Do you think the UN will be able to like, uh, like, propagate some a software like this throughout all the bodies, or will it be the U.S. and other? advanced countries using it? Um, so I guess I would say it really, again, depends on which tools we're talking about. So right now, if you're a negotiator from Botswana and your first language is not one of the six um, uh, UN languages, and you come to the negotiations, you might already be using Google Translate or documents that or, or uh, apps that help you readily translate your proposals into one of the six languages, right? You may already, that may already be in place for some of those tools. But uh, more broadly, I think it's the case that there are, you know, a handful of states, maybe you can list them on two hands, 
that are really interested in AI and machine learning tools have private sectors that are really interested in them and are making significant advances. So Chatham House, um, which is one of the few actors that's kind of thought about this in the international space, one of their proposals is that states really invest in these tools, not just China and, U and Russia and the US invest in these tools, but all states invest in these tools to try to avoid falling behind, right? And, um, and so I think some of it will just depend on the appetite of different leaders to pick up that call. Same thing with the UN. So um, the UN recently uh, or is involved in just finishing up a study about customary international law. The ILC, the International Law Commission, and Michael Wood had, have done a long-term project on this. And one of the things they've been wrestling with is, how do we find customary practice? There are all these documents out there. How do we do it? Urging states to come forward with their own practice. But they don't talk about the potential for machine learning and computational text analysis here. And I feel like that's an opportunity missed for them. Um, so if somebody from the UN Secretariat said, hey, could we talk? Uh, what do you have to suggest? I think there's a lot of uh, room here for them to do good. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, Kyle. So I feel like the, the two problems here of the difficulty in, in programming in sort of inputs and principles on the front end and then the difficulty in figuring out what the algorithms used in making the recommendations on the back end are more acute in like the due process context of making decisions to target in the field or making you know sentencing decisions in court cases. Yeah. But in the predictive cases that you're talking about, couldn't there be the same problem where, you know, I feel like there's a lot of head faking and sort of politicized language in, you know, Trevo for, for treaty negotiations in UN Security Council, you know, are you worried that algorithms might spit out bad recommendations that people, you know, assume we this is all about sovereignty because China talks about sovereignty all the time. People might be able to like sort of manipulate the algorithms or at least that they'll they'll spit out recommendations that are not very helpful. Well so where I thought you were going with that question is about gaming the algorithm. So I think part of your question may be, okay, let's say that China knows we're running algorithms on all the documents that we have like all the documents the UN's got and that that's going to help affect our negotiation posture on things. And, uh, and so China says, okay, we are going to make lots of statements about the importance of Botswana. And so our, our algorithm says, oh, in the past five years, China's been obsessed with Botswana. But it turns out it's just a head fake, right? That's, and so when we say, well, you know, we're happy to provide some more financial aid to Botswana if whatever. They're like, oh, okay, uh, I, guess, I guess then we can agree on the deal because they've totally set us up to head down the wrong path. I think that's absolutely a possibility. But your question, I think your question had more in it too. So, Well, I think the, my worry there is that because of that effect that you might, yeah, you might get bad algorithmic recommendations yeah. and not be able to figure out in the same way, like I don't, I worry that the algorithms would not be able to understand China is gaming us, or even, not gaming, but you know, they say, I feel like there's a lot of language in resolutions that tends to be, uh, to say what side, what one side wants it to say, but yeah. be said in sort of non-committal, you know, resolves, feel strongly that, and not sort of decisional language. I guess, I mean, I guess you could just program around those problems, but I just worry that as long as there's this black box problem of not being able to understand what inputs 
matter to the decision exists, that it'll be hard to rely on the recommendations that come out of them. Okay. Even if it's not the algorithm making a decision, even if it's just right. sort of offering you preparatory advice, that as long as you don't know, you know, uh -huh. what the logic behind it is, yeah. that it won't really be very useful. Okay. So there, I think the answer is explainable AI. Um, and it could well be that the kinds of algorithms we're talking about here don't require deep neural nets that are really hard to actually make explainable. That these are things where, uh, so let me back up. Explainable AI is this idea, it's trying to wrestle with the black box problem. And there are a whole bunch of different types of explainable AI that computer scientists have been developing. Some of them try to crack open the black box. Some of them write algorithms alongside the main algorithm and uh, sort of give a rough approximation of what weight the main algorithm has given to different factors without being a perfect representative. So I think that's the direction you would want to take these. So A, I don't know that you need the deep, deep neural nets except for things like translation um, for the kinds of algorithms that I have in mind. And then second, it would therefore be easier to create explainable AI to, for the lawyers that are trying to use this or the diplomats that are interested in using this. Any other questions? I, so I was thinking just, I don't really understand, and I think this is partially because I'm not very technologically savvy, um, but if, countries are in their own language use if I guess it's just I don't understand how a computer would be able to in like one language or multiple just like the the difficulties in translation of different languages and how there are some terms in other languages that don't translate into like what they should mean in other languages and I just I see a lot of problems with that well, so I think if you were having a U.S. computer scientist try to create algorithms that were sensitive to like a Nepalese dialect, <laughs> that would be a problem, right? You would have to spend the time getting it right on the front end, and maybe that's you get a, a, a high-level Nepalese interpreter sitting next to you saying, this word is, doesn't mean what you think it means. This is going to pick up this set of documents and so on. So absolutely, you'd have to be very careful about that. So the but the... The six UN languages, that's really like computer scientists are training their algorithms on that because it's such high quality uh, translation um, across six pretty different languages. Um, so that would be kind of the gold standard. But you're absolutely right. I mean, that is a real challenge. And especially if you're in my customary international law state practice project, um, trying to figure out what phrase Vietnam uses for rock versus island uh, will be really important. So, um, so it's a hurdle, for sure. And more of a hurdle, I think, that's why domestic law doesn't quite wrestle with those, um, those challenges. Great. Well, thank you guys very much for coming. I appreciate the time. <laughs>